This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Seven years ago, Slate Magazine published The Black Film Canon, a collection of 50 of the best films directed by Black filmmakers. The intent was to challenge both gatekeepers and makers of best of lists to consider the breadth of artistry Black creators have demonstrated on screen, despite the odds being historically stacked against them. Since then, the opportunities for Black filmmakers to flourish have only increased. Moonlight won Best Picture at the Oscars, Get Out was a cultural phenomenon. And so we've teamed up with Slate to update the Black film canon. I'm Aisha Harris, and on this episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're sharing highlights from the expanded Black film canon. Joining me today is the host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, Brittany Luce. Welcome back, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yay. And also joining us is my former colleague at Slate, Slate writer Dan Coyce, who is also the author of the new novel, Vintage Contemporaries. Welcome to the show, Dan. I'm so happy to be back talking to you, Aisha. I know. It's a nice little reunion here. I'm very excited. So back in 2016, I was a culture writer at Slate Magazine. Dan and I put together this big project called The Black Film Canon. We reached out to a variety of esteemed critics, scholars, and filmmakers, including Robert Townsend and Ava DuVernay, and they shared their picks for the best films by Black directors. Then Dan and I curated a list of 50 excellent and culturally significant films. So this list spanned almost a century's worth of Black representation on screen. It included films directed by Spike Lee, Charles Burnett, and Dee Rees. But it also included everything from Oscar Micheaux's groundbreaking 1920 silent film Within Our Gates to pop classics like Friday and Waiting to Exhale, and all the way up to Ezra Edelman's epic seven-and-a-half-hour documentary series O.J. Made in America. Seven years later, the landscape for Black on-screen storytelling has only grown vaster, more varied, and more dynamic. And so we thought now would be a perfect time to revisit and update the list and release the Black Film Canon (laughs) 2.0 as a collaboration between Slate and NPR. So like last time, Dan and I asked filmmakers and critics, including Brittany, to share their favorite Black-directed movies released since we originally published the list in 2016. Dan and I have tallied the votes, we've added 25 new films to the canon, and yes, Moonlight, Get Out, Black Panther, of course, they are all in there. And you can find the full list at slate.com slash blackfilm. But in the meantime, the three of us are going to highlight some of our favorite new additions and make the case for why they deserve to be in the Black Film Canon 2.0. So, Brittany, I want to start with you. You are a newcomer to voting on this list, and I was very happy to have you here. And so tell us about your first pick that wound up on the Black Film Canon 2.0. Oh, my gosh. First of all, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. This is like bigger than being let into the Academy. (laughs) 
just so glad to be here that I could vote. A number of people have told us that. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I'm thrilled. Yeah, so my first pick is 40-Year-Old Version, came out in 2020, written and directed by Rada Blank. It was her directorial debut, which you could not tell from watching the film. It was just so sure and clear, and it had a quality that I think tends to be missing from a lot of films that are about women who are in their 40s, which is like a good heap of interiority. <laughs> it was about this woman, also named Rada, who is like a down-on-her-luck playwright in New York City. And she is approaching 40. She's processing some loss. She's kind of at this moment in her life where she feels like, you know, adrift, but also like, I didn't arrive where I thought I would arrive by now. She's clearly talented. She's got a lot of drive. But the playwriting thing is just not coming together. She's kind of like really working against a lot of old white money and old white tastes in the theater <laughs> world. And she decides that she is going to reinvent herself as a rapper. Yo, it's poverty porn. You regular blacks are just such a yawn. Yo, if I want to get on, better write me some poverty porn. She refers to herself as Rodimus Prime. Yes, such a great name. (laughs) It's shot in black and white, which feels fresh. That choice specifically helped to bring forth a lot of the details of New York. New York feels like its own character in the film. I know people say that about like sex in the city and whatnot, but like it really feels like its own character in this film. And it feels like she really used it as the perfect setting for like a later in life coming of age story. I consider the 40-year-old version to not just be a fantastic directorial debut, to not just be a funny, deeply funny film about a Black woman's, a grown Black woman's interiority, but also I think about it as one of the great New York films Mm. on par with any other storied New York filmmaker like Spike Lee or Scorsese. I just really, 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 really loved it. It was like, Despite the fact that I think that like Rada in the film, the character is trying to process like what she feels is like a level of not measuring up or immaturity. I felt like the film itself handled her whole emotional arc in such a confident and mature way. Yeah, it's like a really smart, funny, fresh movie about a grown up black woman. Those don't come too often. Yeah, we don't we don't have a lot of those, especially not. Ones that aren't sort of broad, like the humor here is way more specific than some other movies that I also think are great, but you know, something like Girls Trip or whatever, it's a lot Mm -hmm. more intimate in a way. But yeah, Dan, what are are your thoughts on 40-year-old version? One of the things I love about this movie is everything about it from the sort of the personal angle and the almost meta angle of the storytelling to that choice to make it in black and white, really tie it to a long history of New York independent film And so I think of this not only as a great New York story, but a great New York indie story. It's a creator Mm. taking the particular struggles and passions of her life and making them into a fresh and interesting story. Visually, it draws from New York indie film of the 70s and 80s, the kinds of things that in the very early years of Sundance were winning prizes. And it's not an accident that this also won a prize at Sundance in 2020. And then it's repurposing them and refurbishing them to tell a distinctly modern 
story of a different New York than the New York that is a character in a lot of those indie movies of of that era, which I really loved. Yeah, yeah. I loved this film. I'm very happy it's on our list. We actually did a full episode on this way back when it came out in 2020, and we're actually going to be re-airing it tomorrow, so you can Yay. check it out. Uh, you can hear my thoughts and other guests' thoughts, but clearly this is a movie, if you have not caught up with it, you definitely should, because it will bring a smile to your face and also might make you feel something. So that's The 40-Year-Old Version, directed by Rada Blank, and that came out in 2020. So Dan, let's hear your first pick uh, for one of your favorite movies on the list. I'm really happy that we have included Hale County this morning, this evening. It's a 2018 documentary that was made by Ramel Ross. He filmed it over the course of about five or six years in Hale County, Alabama, It's a mostly rural county in Western Alabama in the Black Belt. And it's just a very carefully, closely observed portrait of everyday life in this particular part of the world. Ross basically spent those five years pointing his camera at the beautiful things that he saw, at the people that he met while he was down there. And he captures fragmentary moments of the lives of the people who he observes and the friends that he makes. One of the things I really love about this movie is that in opposition, I think, to a lot of documentaries about rural corners of America or rural corners of the world, it's not interested in finding a kind of traumatic or uplifting narrative. It's not interested in narrative really at all. The goal of the movie isn't to make the characters at its center characters in a story that you then can draw a bunch of conclusions from about their good or their bad choices or whether they're victims of fate or victims of politics. Instead, Ross is intent on us spending time with them the way that he did. And he's intent on finding magical moments over that half decade in their lives and magical moments in this community. And I love that it's on our list because the movie really made me think about what a documentary about a black community can do or should do. He's not ignoring the barriers that the community faces or the different ways that his subjects struggle. In fact, some very sad things happen to some of the characters in this movie. But he frames it all in the context of looking for and finding the sublime in human beings' lives. And so the result is a very beautiful movie that always feels like any moment you're going to see something you've never seen before that in a funny way is nevertheless part of the everyday for these people and by extension, all of us. Yeah, I really like how you framed it as something that made you sort of rethink what a documentary can do because it's a movie that makes you kind of work to sort of understand follow where it's going. And and I like that challenge. I like feeling as though it's as, as much about mood and about feeling as it is about telling a story. And it is such a different way of doing that. And I was just absorbed in these people's lives. And when it ended, I was like, oh, I, I could have watched another hour of that. It's really, really, really moving. And I'm glad it made this list. We had a, a few people uh, who we reached out to put this on their list, and I totally see why. All right. Well, that's Hale County this morning, this evening, directed by Ramel Ross from 2018. 
So my pick is one that I think maybe a lot of people will be excited about, but then other people might be like, what? Uh, Is this a movie? (laughs) Is this a movie? (laughs) Well, yes. And also, what is a movie anyway these days? One of the ones that we felt needed to be on here was Homecoming, directed by Beyonce and also Ed Burke, but directed by Beyonce. (laughs) And come on now. First of all, if we can consider things like Stop Making Sense, some of the greatest movies of all time, I think, Mm -hmm. obviously, this also falls under that category. And I think it is one of the best concert movies ever created. And Look, a lot of people say that Beyonce is overrated. I think they are wrong. I don't know those people. (laughs) I know. I don't acknowledge those people. (laughs) So my case for why this should be on here is because what she's doing and what she has shown herself to be doing, especially within the last six, seven years, is she's become this sort of like expert curator. Her and her team have become this expert curator of Black history. And Homecoming is directly addressing that and directly speaking to this idea of cultivating an appreciation for Black culture, for HBCU culture, for everything from Nina Simone to Alice Walker are, are quoted in this film. And what she's so good at doing is, yes, she's a millennial. She's, you know, in her 40s now. But she's always had a reverence for the past and for making sure that she's referencing everything that came before her, especially considering how difficult it has always been for Black artists to own their own work and also to receive credit where credit is due. She has been such a force in helping to get various artists who may have been forgotten to get the credit that they're due. If it's been a while since you've seen Homecoming or for some reason you have not watched it, which what are you doing with your life? It's not just the Coachella performance that broke our brains and melted our hearts and made us all just like, I learned some of the choreography. I'm not going to lie. I've rewatched it many, many times. (laughs) But also she weaves in these sort of behind the scenes looks at her creating the show and sort of explaining what her intent was with the show. At one point she says, instead of wearing my flower crown, I'm going to bring like the HBC, I'm going to bring that flavor to this show. And it's a very direct, like, I'm the first Black woman to headline Coachella and you're going to know I'm bringing Black culture to Coachella. I'm not bringing anything else there. And there's a moment where she actually has Nina Simone in voiceover speaking while we're seeing behind the scenes footage of them creating the show. And I want to play a little clip of that. Giving out to them that Blackness, that Black power, that Black pushing them to identify with Black culture. I have no choice over it in the first place. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, Black people. Brittany, I know you have lots of thoughts on homecoming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I went to an HBCU, like whose homecoming is perhaps like world renowned, I would say. I went to Howard University. And um, when I first saw this performance, I started crying because it was just such a loving reproduction of an experience that I knew very well. It was clear that she had done her homework, that she was calling upon her own life experiences and observations, that she was collaborating with knowledgeable people who actually pledged these sororities and played in these marching bands. The musical direction was unreal. There's a level of spectacle 
that she brings to everything that she does that is just not necessarily being offered by a lot of her peers. Mm -hmm. So as time passes and we get further and further away from this performance, I am more grateful for the fact that this documentary exists as a testament to the amount of work, the amount of care that went into making probably one of the most impressive live performances of the past 130 <laughs> years. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. that there is actual um, record of that. You know, so frequently, Black people, especially Black women, Black artists, their work is misinterpreted. People make assumptions. People who don't have proper context for why the work sounds or looks the way that it does are like very frequently people who end up being in like the taste-making positions that decide whether their work is good or bad. Um, and I think that goes like doubly or triply or quadruply for Black women. And I like the fact that she didn't just put this out into the world. This documentary acts as a companion piece where she actually gets to give herself proper credit, as you mentioned, but also show that like, it's not just like I made this, but this is everything that went into it. Yeah, And it's very rare to actually have a Black woman artist have a documentary that's about craft. Yeah, she's a very show-your-homework type of person. Even just for that in and of itself, even if you're not super into Beyonce, I think that the value of that, having a music documentary that's so well-made, about a performance that was so well done, the value of that is going to reveal itself over time. Yeah. This movie and Beyonce's films overall over the last couple of years are playing a really important role in a real evolution of the music documentary, or really the celebrity documentary, one that is essentially inescapable, which is that many, many more celebrities are essentially following the Beyonce mold. They are creating their own documentaries about their work that give them control over the story that's being told. And that has resulted in a lot of interesting documents. It's also resulted in a lot of essentially uncreative yeah, um, hagiographies. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I think is really important about Homecoming is that it's this kind of documentary, probably the only kind of celebrity documentary we're going to get in the near future, done at an extremely high level of craft, creativity, and interest in process. Yeah. So that even though Beyonce, who officially co-directs this movie, but is clearly the artistic brains behind everything that you see on screen, even though she exists an iron fist of control over what we see, you still get the impression that there is something revelatory, creative, and new happening on the screen in a way that a lot of other people making these kinds of movies don't even bother to do. That's such a good point. Yeah. Well, that is Homecoming, uh, filmed by Beyonce, directed by Beyonce and Ed Burke, and it's on the list, so fight us. <laughs> All right, Dan, that brings us to your second and last pick for one of your favorites. Let us know what it is. This new and updated Black film canon was not only intended to reflect all the amazing movies that have come out since 2016 when we first did it, we also wanted to have the chance to look back at the years that we initially covered and find gems that we had missed the first time around. And so we asked all of our experts, critics, and filmmakers to also tell us, is there something that should have been on the list the first time? And one of them is this film. It's called Looking for Langston. It came out in 1989. It's a short documentary slash Fantasia directed by a British director and conceptual artist named Isaac Julian. It's a beautiful lyrical exploration of gay black life in 
the 1980s and also in the mid-century and pre-mid-century world of New York gay high society. It's a kind of exploration of the work of Langston Hughes. It's a kind of exploration of the Harlem Renaissance. It's a kind of reclamation of 20th century gay life and erotics presented as an art project, but also as a mini narrative of Black gay existence flourishing and then being attempted to be stamped out. When it was made in 1989, this documentary was a little bit of a sensation. As it was coming to New York, the Langston Hughes estate objected to the film. They objected to Hughes being associated with gay culture. It has never been confirmed necessarily that Hughes was gay, though there are a lot of stories in contemporaneous literature of men falling in love with him or describing kissing him or being intimate with him in various ways. The estate objected. They, in fact, restricted the film from using Hughes' poetry. Several major points in the movie are punctuated by footage of Hughes' or other people reciting Hughes's poetry. And so when it played at the New York Film Festival in 89, it was there was this very unusual circumstance in which this 42-minute movie, the entire movie screened on a screen, but every time there was a Langston Hughes poem, the sound was completely cut out to keep from being sued by the Langston Hughes estate. And I find that an incredible historical moment in Black queer film. This movie that is about making visible the secrets that history has been keeping was at its first United States screening silenced by orders of the historical caretakers who did not want this particular version of the story to be told. I love that we have this movie on the list. It's beautiful. It's thought-provoking. It is very subtly erotic. And it's surprising. It's a very surprising movie, especially when you think of it coming out in 1989 at the very dawn of of new queer cinema. And it really influenced, I think, the way that directors like Todd Haynes were making movies in the 1990s and the way that they were portraying queer desire in new and and innovative and interesting ways. And the beauty of those moments still holds even today. He speaks good damn English to me. I'm his brother, Carver. He doesn't speak that diss and dat bull I've seen quoted. Every word he speaks rings clear in my head. It's on the list now because Henry Louis Gates wrote us back right away and basically demanded to know why Looking for Langston wasn't on the original list. He (laughs) he was like, it's genius. And the answer was that neither Aisha or I had ever been able to see it. Mm. It's possible to see, but it's challenging. But... One thing that has really changed the black film canon from 2016 to 2023 is that we're not only in a golden age of filmmaking by black directors, I think we're in a golden age for archivists and historians of black cinema. And so this is just one of several older films that are on the list due to the work of archivists and historians and directors advocating for themselves. We finally had a chance to see them. Yeah, I mean, that was really... One of the main goals at the time of the original list was to be able to say, despite everything, there has always been innovation in Black filmmaking, and there has always been people who have been trying to make sure things don't get lost. And Mm -hmm. I do think it's telling in a way that most of the films on this little conversation here today and the other ones on the list itself, many of them are somewhat connected to this idea of archiving and 
making sure that these things are brought to light because there's just so much media now and it's so easy for things to get lost and references to not be understood as mm. being references. I just think it's great that we are able to, to bring these to light. All right. Well, that is Looking for Langston, directed by Isaac Julian, and that's from 1989. Brittany, what is your final pick for this conversation? My final pick for this conversation is Sorry to Bother You, which came out in 2018. Yeah. Written and directed by Boots Riley. I just realized I'm like both choices that I had today were a little auteur moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Sorry to Bother You is such a ride. It centers on this character named Cash, aka Cassius, who needs to get a job because he's living in his uncle's garage with his girlfriend, who's like this performance artist. And they're like in a kind of like bizarro, slightly cartoony version of like modern day Oakland. And so Cash gets this job as a telemarketer for this company called Regal View. And he struggles with customers until his older coworker, a character named Langston, who's played by Danny Glover. Of course, like if you're going to make a black movie in the Bay, you have Danny Glover. Yes. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and his older coworker tells him to use his white voice. Hold up. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. My white voice? Yeah. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on. You know what I mean, young blood. You have a white voice in there. You can use it. It's like when you pulled over by the police. In the film, Lakeith Stanfield plays Cash. When he's speaking in his white voice, he's not speaking in his actual, like, own voice. His voice is that of David Cross. Tim, I want to chop it up more, but I got to get to my squash game. Was that Visa or MasterCard? I loved this film. I, I think that... A lesser film would have stopped at like the conceit of, oh, this character has to use a white voice. And that would have kind of been where the most provocative idea that comes across on screen. <laughs> it's far from the most provocative thing in that movie. <laughs> exactly. And, like I don't want to necessarily spoil it right, for listeners, but like things get so, so zany from then on. I think that for me, this is a film about unions. The other Regal View employees moved to unionize. Cash while the rest of his friends are trying to organize his workplace, he's offered a promotion that he takes and he kind of loses his identity as he's instructed by another Black employee to basically talk in his white voice all of the time. It's also kind of like a film, I think, about like cult of personality and also um, this place that I think we now are more readily acknowledging that like the American workforce is in post-pandemic. I really, really love where the movie goes. I have some thoughts about the ending, <laughs> but overall, like I think that um, films that belong in the canon are films that kind of say something about the times that we're in. Yes, the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist. This is a film about organizers and workers, and that seems to be closer to more people's actual experience than, say, the characters <laughs> on a show like Succession. However, we just don't see those stories quite as much. I think that this film captured something about huge corporations and megalomaniacs <laughs> who sometimes had them and what it means to organize your workplace and like what a union busting tactic can really look like. I think it had something really smart to say about all of those things before that kind of talk and that sort of collective action was cresting in the zeitgeist. And that yeah. to me was actually one of the biggest reasons why I thought it belonged on this list. Not just because it's like funny and it's a total ride and it's totally off the wall. And a lot of the performances are really great, 
but also because I think it's a film that like watching it more recently in a way, I kind of feel like it saw the future a little bit yeah. for your average American worker. Well, that is Sorry to Bother You, directed by Boots Riley from 2018. And I feel like this is a very great list. I know we put it together, but still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we only had time to highlight five of the films that we've put in the Black film canon. There are so many other great movies on this list. In fact, now that we've added to the list, we have 75 total because we didn't take any out. We believe in expanding the canon, not restricting it. Absolutely. Yes. So you can find the complete list at slate.com slash black film. And that brings us to the end of our show. Brittany Luce, Dan Kois, thanks so much for being here and making the case for your picks for the black film canon. This was so great. I loved it. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks, both of you. This episode was produced by Mike Katzif and Candace Lim and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.